Hello, listeners. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all for the love and support that you've shown us. It's been fun so far, and we're really looking forward to our future conversations together. Being a youth pastor, my summers are insane, and this one was no different, so I apologize for our mini hiatus. But for now, I'm rested up and ready to roll. So if you have any topics or suggestions for us, be sure to email those to info at okcfirst.com. So, today's episode was recorded earlier in the summer, but the substance is all too relevant for us here and now, so I'm really excited to share our conversation with Britt Bullerjack with all of you. All right, that's all I've got. Here's the show. Welcome to the Unafraid Podcast on the OKC First Podcast feed. My name is Zach Lucero, and I am the youth and creative pastor here at OKC First. I am here with the man, the myth, the dad who can, but chooses to not beat up your dad, Senior Pastor John Mendorf. I, I, don't, I don't know if I like that one. <laughs> you, cho- you chose not to. I made you a pacifist. Hello, young Zachary. Always good to be here. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And sitting next to us is uh, is our dear friend and colleague, uh, college and uh, young clergy pastor and general lover of all things nature, mm. Britt Bullerjack. Hello. Yeah. A word of personal privilege, if I could. Zach. Yes, of course. Happy anniversary to right. Aaron Aww, and Britt right. Jack. Can we do an applause? Sound? Yeah, when you're when you're listening to this, listeners, this is uh, this will have been a couple weeks past. So, oh, that's I'm what sorry I'm, about that. No, but it's today fine. is our anniversary. Today, today is your anniversary. Yeah. Your 25th is what, which is amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's just been together so, so long. You're so young. Wow. Oh, yeah, 11th. 11th. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. The 11th and mine was roughly the 12th. Yeah. Oh, right, 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 right. 27th. Right, and so so we're here to talk about creation care with Britt. Uh, she is, uh, at least what John and I are deeming as an expert oh. in, in the field, at least around here. Mm. Um, so let's let's just kick off, uh, and we'll start with just what what are we talking about when we talk about creation care and environmental theology? But uh, maybe just take one of those. Sure. So creation care, environmental theology, or eco theology, um, are all trying to kind of access God's heartbeat when it comes to creation and to figure out where we're coming from and where we're headed, kind of what our role is as Christians in the world. Yeah, in a nutshell, I think that's what it is. Can, can, is it too much of a stretch to say that if you're going to get deeply invested in environmental theology, eco-theology, or like that, is it too much of a stretch to say you probably then have a particular understanding of eschatology? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it definitely shapes the way you think about the end times, kind of this um, mantra around here that um, God is creating, uh, God is making all things new rather than all new things. And um, as partners in the work of the kingdom, I think, yes, eco-theology definitely kind of partners with an eschatology of recreation. it, it's hard to want to save something and preserve something if you think it's just going to be thrown away in the end. Um, and I don't think that um, it it is – It's. I'm sure there are people who feel that way and still care about the planet, but it would be a harder partnership yeah, it seems to there. Suck some of the energy out of mm. your – the work that you would do to preserve the planet if you think that God's going to – if God is intent on destroying it anyway. Right. And a rapture theology seems to have that sort of embedded in it. Yeah. So this is a way for 
you for us and for you to lead us in living in the light of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that does that So I'm saying yeah. it's not just eschatology, it's also some Christology too in there, right? Oh yeah. I think um resurrection is a huge theme in ecological theology. This idea that, you know, we are not living on this like single use disposable planet. We're here to create and recreate and be co-creators and that resurrection is definitely of the kingdom and by the kingdom and for the kingdom. So I think all of those things, to me at least, work together yeah. the way that I wrap my mind around things. How, how did you? How did you get into this? Like how? Because you're, you're pretty passionate about it uh, at this yeah. point. How did you? How did you get into this? Um, so when I was a little girl, um, my family we lived in Seattle for a few years, and um, I really got into tree climbing. There's a lot of really nice tall, straight trees out there. And there were several in my neighborhood. And um, when we moved to Oklahoma, I sort of fell into the same kind of patterns. We lived with my grandparents for a little while. They had a really great tree in their backyard. It wasn't tall, but it was kind of wide and spread out and had really smooth bark. And I remember being up there constantly when we were at their house. And um, one time we kind of ran through, I, we went over to visit and I kind of ran through their house and I'm like, hi grandma, hi grandpa. And I get to the backyard and there's a stump there where my tree used to be. And um, I remember sitting on that stump and just crying and crying, my dad coming out and trying to tell me that they were sorry and that they didn't realize how important that tree had been to me. Um, And you can kind of follow that logic for quite a while. I felt very close to nature and animals. And then my senior year of college, a a documentary came out called The Inconvenient Truth. And um, I was skeptical of the message just because it kind of features some people I generally disagreed with at that point. And um, but it was a really convincing understanding of climate change. And I found myself feeling like if I bought into climate change, if climate change is a thing, then surely God cares about it and the animals that it's affecting and the people that it's affecting. Um, and so I really think that those, those two things for me are kind of the milestones on the journey where I realized that um, I cared a lot and that there was care that needed to be taken. So, okay, Britt, we got some questions from the audience, right. and I'm going to the the first one is a tough one. Mm. Um, the question reads: Isn't this business about saving the earth a distraction from the church's task of saving souls? I think I have wow, so many thoughts about this question, but let me try to break it down to three things. Okay. Um. First of all, is this a distraction from the church's task of saving souls? I, I would say, um, I don't know if we've noticed as a church culture, as an evangelical culture, but there are people who um, find it difficult to take our claim of God-created creation seriously when we don't seem to care about it. I think there are a lot more people whose souls might be affected by us bearing witness to the desire of God to care for creation, for us to care for creation. So in that way, I think my care for creation is sometimes the the best witness that I have. In fact, I'm actually, um, I'm in a class right now 
on um, environmental issues in Oklahoma. And I went to the first class period and everybody in the class kind of introduced themselves. And it's a, it's a community class. It's offered by the Nature Conservancy. And there's 40 people in the class. And we kind of all went around and said who we were and what we do. And we got to the end. I was the last one and realized I had been the only pastor um, in the room. I was the only pastor who introduced myself. And I said later at the break to one of my classmates, you know, I'm actually really surprised I'm the only pastor in this class. And she gave me the strangest look, kind of really like grimaced, confused, and said, seriously, I'm surprised there's a pastor at all in this class. As if to say, pastors do not care about the condition of animals and the condition of people affected by environmental degradation. And I'm surprised that you are here at all. And I that blew me away. That stuck with me for a whole week. I was just just affected by that idea that here was this person. She had already told me earlier in the conversation that she was not involved with church and she had turned her back on God. And she did not expect the church to care about the things that she cared about that she felt like were vitally important. And so for me, I think caring about about creation care is a vital part of, of my witness. Um, I think it's interesting that the question um, phrased our task as saving souls. Maybe that's a misunderstanding of the the role of the people of God in in the world. I think part of who we are called to be is bringing the kingdom on earth, right? Your your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I can only imagine a heaven in which there is justice and grace and plenty. And all of these things are so broken and um, at times unavailable on on earth because of the state of of the planet and our environment. And so for me, I see, quote unquote, the church's task as participating in that resurrection kingdom and bringing that kingdom um, on earth as it is in heaven. So to me, these things are inextricably linked. And my witness and my call as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, recreating all of creation is to be what St. Ignatius of Loyola calls a co-laborer with God on earth. Yeah. We have put too much distance. We, especially those of us in in an evangelical tradition, a term that I find harder and harder to fit, actually, uh, fit into. But we have put too much distance between the physical and the spiritual. Mm. And as we try to, and and, and maybe um, as we try to have the conversation about souls being encased in bodies, that that is us trying to say, wait, this this is physical. This is not just spiritual. Come to find out that it, it even extends, extends beyond my physical body to the rest of a very physical environment. Right. And yet there is still spirit. Yeah. There is a spirituality. Now, how, so let me ask you, here's a, a kind of a riff on that same question. Mm-hmm. N.T. Wright talks about the difference between pantheism and panentheism. Yeah. Pantheism says that there is, there is divinity in the tree itself. 
panentheism says there is divinity in nature because God can be traced in nature, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I know you well enough to know that you are a panentheist as mm-hmm. opposed to a pantheist. Sure. So how do you teach panentheology mm-hmm. without it going all the way to pantheism? Sure. Um, I find it helpful to talk about God as artist. So my my friends, Ashley and Nora Whiteside, are painters, right? And they um, paint together. Nora's six, seven at this point. And, um, you know, Ashley is her mom. And they work together to kind of create these really incredible, I actually have a few in my house and one in my office, um, paintings that are so inspiring to me. And I can look at those paintings and literally see finger, their print, fingerprints, right? Because Nora does a lot of this stuff with her hands. Right. Um, and I can recognize the kind of spirit and intention of Ashley and Nora in one of these paintings. And I can sit there for a long time and admire and imagine and dream. Um, but I recognize that looking at that painting is not like looking directly at Ashley or looking directly at Nora. So right. for me, it's like, a step removed, but just barely, right. to be honest, because I see, I do see God's kind of handiwork, let's say, right. um, to use older language or fingerprints um, in the world when when we look at things that are complex or interconnected, um, when we see patterns. I think all of these things, to me, point back to a God that imagines and is creative. So God as artist for me is a really helpful narrative. I think if we really believed that God as creator um, had put artistry and um, was a, a master artist and this this is his masterpiece, then surely we as followers of that God would take better care. We might even become restorers of those works as they wear down over time that we might be like, those museum um, curators or artists who really, and it's an art, right? To kind of go back in there and restore a painting to its original condition, sometimes even, let's say, maybe better than its original condition, and that we would end up being those people for this master, right? Um, To be restorers of the the masterpiece. I can see you as a curator. I Mm. can also see you as a cultivator Mm. because you have... You have a backyard space yeah. that I'd like for you to describe a little bit. Sure. But my suspicion is that a lot of the same muscles and imagination you use to cultivate that space in the back, mm. you use to cultivate and pastor as a cultivator. Yeah. So can tell us a little bit about the space and how that has shaped you, formed you. Yeah. So a year ago, we bought a house. Um, Very that was, grateful that you did that. Yeah, owned by some dear <laughs> friends of ours who who sold it to us, sort of putting down roots. Let's I like say. That a lot. Um, and I I knew as soon as we we you know got everything signed, that I wanted this to be an example of my belief that Earth should look better than it was when we found it. Um, and so part of the work back there. So so if you kind of go to our backyard. Um, there's like some grasses we're working on cultivating, especially buffalo grass and some wildflower patches. There's flower beds for pollinators. I'm hoping one of my dreams is that our um, backyard flower beds would kind of become a certified um, monarch way station in Oklahoma, which would be really nice. And then we have kind of this fenced off area 
That is a 1,500-square-foot garden. Can we go back to Monarch Way Station? Yeah. It's a great band name. <laughs> it is a great band name. That has T-shirt written all over it, but I'm not sure what it is. Oh, right. Sure. So, you know, monarchs are these incredible creatures that migrate. Butterflies. But butterflies. Yeah, okay. monarch butterflies. And you're um, going to weigh them, like put them on a dish. No, no. That would be great, though, if we trucks. were kind of weighing them. <laughs> Stand yeah. right here, mister. That would be fabulous, actually. Yeah. Um, but no, just, it's a pollinator garden specifically populated with flowers that monarch butterflies appreciate for, for various reasons, right? For nectar or, um, for spaces to lay their eggs and hatch their, you know, or whatever. So monarchs actually migrate from like the Northern parts of Mexico, um, through and then up part of them go kind of west of us and part of them go kind of east of us. But Oklahoma is this magical place where they all come through on their way to like split off on these paths. So there's a huge need in Oklahoma for safe spaces, essentially, for these butterflies and, and many other butterflies, too. But monarchs just happen to be what we're kind of fixated on at the moment. Right. And so it involves having shallow water that they can drink and food like plants that are specifically um, food sources for them and places they can um, lay eggs for caterpillars or that their caterpillars can eat once they... Oh, they're fascinating creatures, actually, monarch oh. butterflies. They have sort of co-evolved with um, several types of milkweed, 20 of which are native to Oklahoma. So you can plant these native milkweeds in your garden and they kind of produce these beautiful flowers, but then they also become this sort of habitat on the on the monarch's way through the U.S. That's fascinating yeah they're they're amazing i'm sorry to detour you there a little no, bit because i want you to talk about something like you're also growing uh i'm looking on your instagram and you grew a strawberry i right. did yeah so one of the things that i wanted to do in this backyard was make a garden we have we also have chickens right five chickens what are their names um phoebe palmer mm -hmm. olive winchester um uh, oh, um, Nina Gunter, Carla Sunberg, and Laurel. Laurel's my favorite. She's named after my mom. We we did have a, a Mildred Bangs wine coop, but she was too feisty, and we had to give her back to her original owner. Boy, so. that's true. Yeah, right. Makes so sense. she lived up to her namesake. <laughs> Um, but they have their own like chicken yard, but they also free range quite a bit, right? So I actually had to fence off what is becoming a garden back there. So we fenced off 1,500 square feet of the backyard, and it is slowly becoming a garden with some raised beds and some forested pieces. Um, and what we're kind of trying to do in the forested spots is um, a technique called permaculture, permaculture is this idea that if we create a forest-like system where all the components are edible or, or many of the components work together to create edibles, then we can kind of let it go eventually. Eventually, that patch will produce cherries and pears and peaches and apples along with kind of herbs underneath and shrubs of berries sort of on its own in a way that it's like self-perpetuating. Yeah. So permaculture is this idea that we can engage in biomimicry, right? Mimicking the relationships that plants have in the environment um, and create spaces that eventually need very little maintenance. But that is quite a bit down creating the road. Creating an so. ecosystem. Mm, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ecosystem. I'm sorry to the I entire mean, no, Jorgensen family. It's perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> ecosystem sounds cooler. But, uh, yeah, congratulations on the on your haul of strawberry. 
Yeah. I, I, we didn't have a great year in the strawberry patch, but the strawberry specifically was actually the first food, piece of food I had ever gr grown myself. And um, Delicious. the college group came over for college group that night just by chance, by happenstance. Yeah. Yeah. And so we all took a tiny bite of this little bitty <laughs> strawberry together. The strawberry. Um, it's and not very like, big. And like celebrated the like first fruits essentially of my so my cool. garden i remember so seeing really that on special. instagram brit brit has an instagram uh and it's uh, at low underscore waste underscore brit low waste and brit, tell me yeah. a little bit about i remember this has been a while since i saw one but you used to do low waste tips oh uh, like on your instagram stories there was one yeah. in particular that that really like punched me in the gut uh <laughs> it was hotel tips how to yes. how to how to live low waste in a hotel can you in talk about hotel. like kind of like what what you uh i don't really know what i'm asking like what kind of things have you like what kind of tips do you have yeah yeah um okay so let me start from the beginning so um january of 2018 i had realized that even though i have engaged in all of these kind of low waste practices i'd never really challenged myself to see like how low could i could i go right so i did a 30 day zero waste challenge um, and I documented that on Facebook because I thought that might be helpful for people to see kind of what I'm going through. Um, and that was eye-opening because I'd already done a lot of stuff. I was using a bamboo toothbrush and um, several other things that had reduced my, my waste. Um, but those 30 days taught me that I still kind of had several steps that needed to be taken. Um, I like to talk about toothbrushes specifically because, you know, every plastic toothbrush you've ever used is still on the planet somewhere. Most plastic toothbrushes are not recyclable. And so kind of even those toddler toothbrushes, John, even those toddler toothbrushes that your parents may have used on you, like if they were plastic, they're still around pretty much in a very similar form that they were when you originally we just used tree branches. When oh, sure, sure. <laughs> right. Um, but... So I kind of talked about all these swaps, right? I spent that month swapping out all these unsustainable things that I had been doing for more sustainable practices and talking about that on Facebook. And I got such a good response from that. People really surprised. People had never thought about how their toothbrush is not recyclable or had never thought about how toothpaste tubes are very difficult to recycle. And um, so kind of eye-opening for people as they sort of thought through all of these issues and like looking at the swaps and like, where did you get that and blah, blah, blah. So after that, I thought, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. Like maybe this should be a type of platform where I can kind of talk about these ideas on a regular basis. And that's where I kind of got the idea for the Instagram, Low Waste Brit. And so, um, yeah, I have a lot of tips on there. Hotels and cruises specifically um, are pretty wasteful by nature. And so for me, hotels was a big one to try to show people um, what they could do. And in a way, I treat staying at a hotel um a little more like backpacking. There's this kind of idea in backpacking that you pack it in and you pack it out, which means you kind of bring whatever you took with you um, back home with you. Um, and whether that means it's a single-use disposable that you're just not littering in nature or if that's reusable things that you are taking home with you. So um, trying to avoid like using the shampoos and conditioners in those teensy bottles in a hotel 
room. You know, it's not super hard to take your own. Um, trying not to throw too much away every day in the hotel. I actually, one of the things that I do is put out the do not disturb sign for the duration of my stay. And that helps me not receive extra toiletries. It helps that they don't take my towels. Like this way of like, you know, when I'm home, I reuse my towel most of a week. So I don't really need a fresh towel every single day. And actually the chemicals used in hotel laundries are pretty notoriously bad for the environment. So one of the ways that we can reduce our environmental impact when it's staying at a hotel, you know, they kind of put up these signs that say, if you want to reuse your towel, like stick it on a rack instead of the floor. And some people are like, huh, they're just trying trying to save money and time and whatever, but actually they are doing a great service for the environment. If you're staying more than one night, kind of reuse those things, try to throw less away and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, um, so tips are a big thing that I've been trying to put on there. Do you, do you ever get pushback, uh, whether that's on your Instagram or just as you kind of go about life, do you get pushback toward uh, on these sort of things? Um, I, I get a little pushback here and there. Um, most people are happy to reduce their waste and to discover ways that, to reduce their waste. Um, but two things specifically always get pushed back when I talk about meat or I talk about climate change. I feel like for some reason, um, we are hesitant to change our habits and practices surrounding either meat consumption or environmental um, practices in general with, with climate change. I feel like for some reason, climate change is still pretty controversial. Um, I feel like I'm pretty convinced by um, relatively objective sources like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They've produced several reports through the UN that you can read on the internet. Um, National Geographic has done a great job talking about climate change and the unsustainability of plastics, especially plastics in the ocean. So for me, climate change is not super up in the air, um, but it is. it does still get the uh, quite a bit of pushback. And then meat specifically, um, factory farmed meat, which is over 95% of the animal products produced in the U.S. are produced using factory farm conditions. And those conditions specifically are very um, unsustainable as far as the environment is concerned and also happen to be not super fun for the animals involved, to say the least. And so I do bring up issues like um, maybe we could eat less beef. Actually, the... Um, National Geographic did an article on a study very recently that said if everyone um, switched from factory farm beef, the, the factory farm beef in their diet to beans and legumes, we would solve climate change instantly. We would need to do nothing else but really? cut out beef and and they actually the study did not look at the impact of any other animal products so this would be just beef just beef so if if we you know kept eating some chicken and eggs and cheese and what, whatever else um the beef specifically is um creating a lot of environmental problems and obviously not everyone is going to reduce their beef consumption to zero and switch it out for beans and legumes but 
every little bit we do helps. Any little bit of animal product that you can replace with uh, sustainable plant food, whole foods preferably. Now, with with either of those, whether that's climate change or uh, beef consumption, is is the pushback coming from just an uh, an unwillingness to change habits or is it just an unwillingness to believe or they uh, believe that there is a problem sort of out of sight out of mind i mean like i mean climate change i mean i don't you you don't really think about it Mm. on a daily it's not something that necessarily like is like staunch in your face every day same with beef you know factory beef um products so i mean is it either is it both um it's definitely defensiveness okay People don't like to think of themselves as part of the problem. People like to think of themselves as relatively good people with relatively um, good practices. And um, I think especially meat, like people don't, meat and animal products specifically, like if we really understood, if the average person knew what I feel like I know, which is how unsustainable most animal foods are the way that they are currently produced, that person would be compelled to eat less. And nobody wants to discover information that could rock their world. It's almost like it's such a big thing that it just shuts my brain down. Sure. It's like, nah, that that's such a big problem. I can't even fathom yeah. the number. If you're thinking through your day and your diet is 50% animal products, which is generous, right? Because studies show it's actually more than 50% animal products. But say you're thinking through your day and and it's more than 50% animal products. That is like 50% of your life that would have to change if you sort of face the music on some of these issues. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be vegan, but if more of us cut out more of these things, um, the environmental impact would just be incredible it's amazing so the pushback and now we were just kind of complimenting you before we started you feel deeply you Mm. feel passionately about these things yeah so much so that i have i have noticed now how many times we've been to lunch together Mm. over the years and (laughs) you kind of have it down i mean you you bring your own flatware yeah i've seen you bring your own napkins Mm -hmm. your own straw yeah, yeah, your own straw. So you you take this very, very, very seriously and mm. yet still are gracious about it. Well, thank you. How? how, how? Because there are a lot of people who would be on, on probably close to where you are, mm. would pretty quickly be called activists, mm. right? Sure. And would not have the kind of grace that you have and the kind of patience that you have for us Mm. and for the other people around you. How have you cultivated that? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit, this is a podcast in a church, right? (laughs) The, The Holy Spirit is sort of working on each of us in her own way. And I think back to stories like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and um, there's there's no loud voice of condemnation there. There's only nudges towards the right thing. And Philip retells this story and is kind of able to say, listen, who am I to say no to a God nudging me somewhere? And I see my role very similarly to just be the nudge, you know, to just kind of inchew toward awareness and um, 
I hope that that quiet activism, in a way, is enough, right? I actually think we're in quite a bit of a crisis. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a study less than a year ago that said we, if we were going to get our um, climate impact um, to be less than two degrees Celsius or closer to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay, okay, let me back up. The climate is changing, right? right? As part of this, average global temperatures are rising. We're already just past one degree Celsius. We believe, scientists currently estimate, that at two degrees Celsius, there will no longer be things like coral reefs and many other things that we think of as vital to the planet and ecosystems around the world. And so with this kind of idea in mind, and, and the Paris Climate Agreement, right, is try to get us towards two degrees warming and no more. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was asked to study what it would take to get down to 1.5. If, if we wanted to still have coral reefs by 2050, what would it take? And the study that they released this past year basically said, We'd have to reduce our carbon emissions by half in 12 years and to zero by 2050. And that's a net zero, right? So some things would, would still produce carbon emissions, but other things would offset that. So a, a net zero by 2050. So <clears throat> kind of my understanding is we've got a dozen years to figure this stuff out. And reducing our emissions by half, especially in this country where we produce 30% of the world's carbon emissions, would be a drastic change in our way of life. So there are moments when I am concerned that the gentleness of my activism will eventually prove to be not enough, mm. that we will not save the planet and therefore ourselves, and that people like myself who are more aware of these issues could have done more. I, I do occasionally worry that I will wish I had done more. I see one of our one of our questions uh, is, is tied to this. They they asked why why go low waste individually when 70% of waste is created by corporations and I can't like corroborate that uh that statistic. But. Oh, that's actually low. I would say um I would estimate that more than 70% of our um physical waste okay, is so, produced yeah, by so I guess I guess so, yeah, same question like, This is why? totally a fair question, yeah. right? Um I think this person probably has good intentions behind this, but it's a false dichotomy that it's either we as consumers reduce our waste or corporations reduce their waste and they're responsible for more of the waste. So the burden should be on them and them alone. Should the burden be on them? Yes, absolutely. I am absolutely in favor of holding corporations accountable. Who does that? By and large, it's consumers. Mm -hmm. We as consumers have quite a bit of say in what a corporation ends up doing or not doing based on our demand for clean for a cleaner environment. So I think we should try to reduce our waste because when I demand fewer products made from plastic, um, fewer plastic products eventually will be made. So I can say to a company, 
I would have bought that product if it had been more sustainably produced. We can care about, we can hold companies accountable. I think a big thing that we can do as consumers is just consume less. So much around us is packaged unsustainably or is itself single-use disposable. And if we reduce our demand for those things, eventually they will um, be fewer and fewer um, units produced, right, eventually. Um, so I think it's both. I think we as consumers must demand more sustainable products when we are going to purchase them. We need to care about where things come from. And a lot of this is a privilege, right? So there are ways in which people without means or time cannot do these things. But for those of us who can, I think it's really important to care where our stuff is coming from and how sustainably that stuff is being produced. In Oklahoma, for example, you can go to OG&E and check a little box to have your home run on wind energy. It costs the average Oklahoman $5 more per month to run their entire house on wind energy. So if we could, as consumers, use and demand those types of more sustainable energies, um, then theoretically there would be right more of that produced and less of other things, um, fossil fuel um, energy produced, right? That's that's sort of great in theory. But then there also should be a, a level on which we as consumers demand that the government also hold people accountable or maybe just demand um, more loudly on a more activist type scale that companies do more. I think there are ways in which um, companies are polluting our rivers, companies are polluting our oceans, um, you know, 46% of ocean plastic is just broken fishing nets. And we don't keep companies accountable for getting their plastic out of our ocean. And eventually what is left is tiny pieces of um, plastic fishing net, right? And so there are some ways in which we must demand and hold accountable companies. There are ways in which we must change our own purchasing practices. But yes, this person is totally right. Companies are at fault as well. But if we hadn't bought it, they probably never would have made it. So it's up to us to care enough to stand up and demand what is needed. Yeah. I think it's a good time. So I, it seems to me, Britt, and maybe this is because I'm, I'm such close proximity to, to what you have done with young clergy, mm. right? And so I'm, I'm aware of the conversations you are having and how many people want to have those conversations with you. Yeah. Do you feel like this is a growing area of concern within, let's say, a young, a young, a younger generation, but it, more specifically, a, a young group of clergy person? People? I, people? I would say so. I, I certainly hope so. It's a topic. Um, so we kind of have hosted and sort of co-sponsor these young clergy conferences. We actually have Young Clergy Con West coming up this October. And um, this comes up every time. The environment has come up every time we've had one of these things. And it's always a topic of conversation. Where is the church on these issues? How can we be more of what God is calling us to be on these issues. And um, specifically, Caleb Haynes and Jason Adkins, who live in Nashville, um, put together a group at M19 to kind of brainstorm what it might look like for the church to have a movement to promote creation care in the Church of the Nazarene. So as part of that, 
um, we got together. We had a lunch at M19, just kind of a grassroots Yelcom type of thing. And we reserved a room for 20, and we had almost 40. So it was kind of standing slash sitting room only. It was beautiful. And what we realized very quickly in that lunch meeting was we could not wrap our minds around a creation care movement in the Church of the Nazarene in two hours. We needed much, much more time. So we put together this event we're calling Creation Care Summit um, 2019, sure. And we're hoping that people will kind of join us in Flint, Michigan this October. And you can find it, I'm sure we can put a link in the show notes or you can find it at creationcaresummit.eventbrite.com. But basically, we're hoping that people will join us in Flint, Michigan to keep the conversation going, to, to brainstorm, to think of, think through these things about what it would take to have a movement for creation care in the Church of the Nazarene. And I think I do see a lot of hope for the kind of young clergy movement that we do care about these things. We are waking up to these issues, which I'm really inspired by. And maybe out of that, what do you hope will happen as a result of convening this this conference and having these conversations maybe legislation or suggestions or what do you think there is um there are some people coming to the conference who will probably be working on legislation i think for me i'm a little more um on the grassroots side of the conversation as well so i'd love to see us do more um podcasting i'd love to see us have more publications you know we have our own publishing house um, the Foundry Publishing, and there are very few, if any, um, publications that they've released specifically on creation care or climate change, anything like this. Mostly, I would just hope to shift the conversation in the Church of the Nazarene from is climate change real to how are we called to care for the handiwork of God? And if, you know, Every church in the Nazarene in the USA, Canada, or in the greater Nazarene environment were to um, care more about these things. And, and some already are, to be fair. There's quite a bit actually um, going on on a grassroots level around the world. But if we were to all get on the same page on this, man, I, I just think the movement would be unstoppable. Yeah. And what a witness to the outside world about how much God cares about the marginalized affected by environmental issues um, and creation itself, man, I just think it would be such a beautiful witness. So, so how can the church, uh, small C or big C start to develop better practices, uh, for environmental care and theology? And maybe what are some of those best practices that yeah. you've heard of other yeah. places or here? Mm. I would say theologically, um, two things. We could start with an understanding of eschatology of the end times that says creation is being renewed and will be finally perfectly renewed mm. rather than creation will be thrown away. I, I honestly don't think God created something so incredible, yeah, that it would be disposable. Um, I don't see creation as disposable, and I don't, I don't think God does either. The second thing we could do is... Um, extricate this issue from politics to say caring for the handiwork of the artist is not about politics. It's not about um, where you stand on any political spectrum. It is about being who we say we are, um, having our lifestyles reflect our values as Christians, um, 
bearing a faithful witness to the world. Um, I, I, in my ecology class especially, I have noticed that the people in there that really care about the environment are religion skeptics. Mm. They're, they're just not sure what to think about God. And I think part of their, so part of what makes them so hesitant is, is because of our lack of witness on issues like these that's, that they feel are vitally important. Um, I think the church could bear better witness yeah. to um, the way that God cares for creation and, and has called us theologically, right, um, from the beginning to care for creation. I think, I think that was one of the topics of one of our two windows discussions. We actually brought in no less than Richard Rohr mm-hmm. to talk to us about um, environmental theology. Yeah, creation care in the environment. Yeah, he was great. What what else would you like to see churches to to get back to Zach's question? What are some what are some small things even some accomplishable? <laughs> what did I just what oh, just happened right there? Uh, accomplishable uh-huh. uh, initiatives. Yeah. So some easy ones. Um, churches could swear off single use disposables. I think mm-hmm. that would be pretty simple. Uh, in the in practice maybe it's complicated as far as um you know maybe your church uses styrofoam cups switching to mugs engaging more people in volunteering to wash them i think you could have a lot more um spots let's say for lay people to serve with reusables um whether it be silverware or mugs or plates for your potlucks that kind of thing um you could recycle you could especially recycle your bulletins um, that kind of paper that you may distribute each week find ways to send that back to be used all over again Um, you could treat the land that your church is on as sacred I think church property um, tends to be overlooked theologically as a as a, um, a statement to the community about how we care for the environment the way that you um, you kind of tell this story about the hospital CEO, CFO, C-something-O, um, that said, we really care about our lawn maintenance company doing a really good job yeah. because people see those flower beds and expect a certain level of service or not. Right. And I think perhaps the same could be said um, for faith communities, that if we trash our literal property, um, that that reflects um, how we feel like we should be caring for the, the creation of, yeah. of God. Um, so I think those things, we could create more pollinator gardens. Um, specifically, churches in urban environments could do more tree planting. So there's this fascinating phenomenon called urban heat island. Oh, yes. And, I'm glad you talk about this. Um, it's a sort of like canopy or, or lack of canopy, let's say, bubble of heat um, created by the replacement of nature with concrete. So a lot of urban environments struggle with higher temperatures than the rural environments around them, um, sometimes at night up to 20 degrees hotter in an urban environment because of tree canopy than the rural environments around it. And and this affects, right, marginalized people in cities who are struggling to heat and cool and pay for their utilities are being affected by this phenomenon, urban heat island. And it is only mitigated well, not only, but it is primarily mitigated by tree canopy, by more and more trees providing more and more shade over more and more of the concrete so that less concrete is absorbing, less heat is releasing, less of that um, during the night. 
And so we're working on an initiative, right? Yeah, we're that's one of the things we're hoping to do um, this coming kind of winter is sort of collect ourselves into some sort of movement that might encourage faith communities, especially in Oklahoma City. We are really struggling with Urban Heat Island, yeah. and um, we could do a lot if all the faith communities in Oklahoma City banded together to sort of um, treeify their properties, yeah. um, then perhaps we could do a lot for our brothers and sisters in Section 8 housing who struggle with paying their bills. And uh, Urban Heat Island, also a great <laughs> <laughs> I just, I mean, there have been several. We almost have another music festival. <laughs> Can't wait to make that t-shirt. Yeah, that's going to be. It'll be our pod great. shirt. Mm, uh, you guys crack me up. We always, we always try to, we always try to cap off uh, at least uh, the serious discussion mm-hmm. with, uh, with the question of hope. I, I always want to know where's the hope in this. And so, uh, what what is your hope for the church and um, as it participates in the in the restoration of creation? Mm. I have hope in the church that we will be who we say we are, and that we will do that out loud. Mm. That when we say we are people who serve a God that created well and called it beautiful and good, that we would be who we say we are. That when we read the Noah covenant and talk about rainbows and how it inextricably links us to God and to all of creation, that we would be who we say we are, that we would find ways to be the hands and feet of God and Jesus and the coming kingdom in this world. But honestly, where I see that right now is outside the church. There's a movement called Fridays for the Future started by this little Swedish girl called Greta Thunberg. And she stopped going to school on Fridays so that she could stand in front of the UN parliament and demand more action on climate change. And she's kind of been... Um, several places at this point. But she's really inspired uh, a movement. So now every Friday around the world, millions of especially high school students, um, you know, ditch school and go to their government um, houses of power and demand action. And that is, to me, is really, really inspiring. I I what is giving me the most hope right now is generation Z. They are aware um, more than any other generation. I, in my opinion, they are, they're aware that climate change will affect them, that environmental degradation um, will affect them more than any other generation ever before. And I think they have taken that personally and I really appreciate it. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I think I think I see a lot of places of hope, especially in the conversation itself. Things like the climate, uh, the Creation Care Summit, mm-hmm. and um, you know, documentaries coming out, and people um, having this conversation more and more, going on podcasts talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are small stirrings. It's my it's my prayer that it's all enough. Hopefully. You're a great college pastor. We haven't talked to any about that, but I think what I <laughs> But I, but my kid is affected by your heartbeat for the environment, mm. Mm. and so 
I, I just like that you're you're Brit. You're you're Brit everywhere you everywhere you are. You're the mm. same person. You carry the same sorts of ideals and convictions into every scenario, mm. and it seems to be making for an effective college ministry message mm. as well. Yeah. So thank you for all that you're doing. Man, thank you for the opportunity to do it. I I don't know if every church would be able to put up with such passion about things that make people uncomfortable. <laughs> Uh, it just adds to the <laughs> to yeah, the rest fine. to the concoction around here. It's great. Too weird. Great. All right, Without you ready? Ado, I think it's time for rapid fire questions. Oh, we lightning have, round. We have I'm not, not very fast at thinking on what's It's okay. Feet, so. Well, okay. it's all right. We've we've had some. We had to bleep one last week. Mm. Uh, Nick, Nick, just coming in hot with some fiery stuff. Yeah. <laughs> We'll just leave it at yeah, that. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll do some rapid fire questions. We have not okay. prepared Brit in any way. These are just stream of consciousness between John and I. We'll right. alternate sure. until we get tired because right. we are old. Right. Well, John's old. Yeah. Not old. Yeah. But anyway, I'll old. Get tired You're definitely old. not old because yeah. I'm not old and I'm old older than you. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, actually, have two to start off with. If that's Uh-oh. okay. Is that all right? Because yeah. it's two part rapid fire questions. Oh, okay. It's a two parter. It's A and B. Correct. It's fine. It's Ready. Uh, first, how many different people live in the house with you? Uh, including my husband, six. Mm-hmm. Which of your housemates is your favorite? <laughs> Tilly. Oh, wow. The dog. Oh, okay. the dog. <laughs> Correct answer is Aaron Bowler Jack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Uh, what color is your toothbrush? Uh, right now, it's a bamboo toothbrush with white bristles. White bristles. There Man. we go. Musical instrument that you wish you could play? The drums. What is your favorite pizza topping? Artichokes. Artichoke hearts. Okay. A pet name that Aaron has for you that you would just soon not tell us, but you will. Uh, I don't know if he has any pet. Does he have pet names for me? I don't know. We're asking. Well, I mean, I'm not at liberty to tell you if he's not saying (laughs) This is what we had to bleep last week. (laughs) Um, I don't know. No, I can't think of any. Okay. Next. Okay. Somebody Pass. comes up to you, says, I want to start the journey toward sustainability. Where do they start? <sighs> Going vegan. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, wow. That's, that's probably like 301. No, no. Like, the deep into the ocean right step there. Step 101 would probably be a documentary. If I could recommend some documentaries or some books to them, that would probably be where I would start. Because you really need to know why you're doing it. My B question, then. Uh-oh. What are those? Oh, mm. um, so yeah. So a good one would be Food Incorporated. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think there's a good like zero waste documentary out there, but there is a good book called Zero Waste Home, which I think is really good by Bea Johnson. Um, she kind of started the like, zero waste movement, um, but she's she's pretty great. So I would recommend. I would probably start there. Okay. Favorite meat substitute. The chicken, um, the chicken, not chicken at Loaded Bowl. It's really good. <laughs> where where she took us not too long ago, yeah. a couple weeks ago for lunch, and it was incredible, actually. Yeah, it's oh, really wow. good. If yeah. you owned, <laughs> sorry, I asked this to Logan Crook. I'm going to, I'm going to tweak it for you. Okay. If you owned the most environmentally sustainable yacht in the world, <laughs> what would you name it? <laughs> um... Good. Yacht, a yacht name? Yeah, what would you name a yacht? Oh, you can tell I've never um, thought about this. <laughs> um, uh, probably just Mildred Banks Wine Coop. Okay. Oh, I, I like that. that. Yeah. Tru or false? Yeah. 
True or false, Rob Bell follows you on Instagram. It was true, but oh, it's currently no. false. He's call, He calls his follower, the people that he follows every year or two. Well, I'm going to prepare a strongly worded letter then. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. When we first started renovating our Airstream a few years ago, um, Rob Bell, who had 39 followers at the time, did follow us on Instagram. And eventually we went to a book signing where I said, Rob, I think you follow us on Instagram. And he said, oh, my goodness, you're Eleanor the Airstream? And I was like, yes. So that was my, like, four seconds of fame was that Rob Bell knew who I was. Not my name or anything, but, like, was just aware of my presence on the earth. That yeah, was, it was great. So good. You rocked it. Uh, last one. If you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Um, I would be a bird because they fly. What kind of bird? <laughs> Maybe a hummingbird. Oh wow! I'm scared of hummingbirds. It's a Are weird, really? irrational fear. Oh, that's a question. But they don't ask. even bite. Oh yeah, that's a good. You could ask. You could ask them. Okay, I have the last last question. Okay. Yeah. What is an irrational fear that you have? Because Zach is afraid of hummingbirds, and it's ridiculous. Well, up and <laughs> up until two weeks ago, when we got bees, I was actually really afraid of bees. Um, and we went in with some friends on two hives. And the first time we ever checked on them, I suited up, man. I was in that bee suit like it was a coat of arms. Yeah. And it was huge on me, right? Because the, the, even the smalls is, like, huge. And we get out there. I can barely walk. I'm waddling towards <laughs> these hives. And I have this, like, giant thing over my head. I can, I can barely see what we're doing because there's this huge netting in front of my face, right? And I realized then, A, how dumb I looked. And B how fine I was. And so we've since checked on the hives like three times and I have not worn any protection because it was just, no, not yet. Man, So I think I was irrationally nervous about bee stings, but it turns out, you know, if you're chill with them, your girls are chill with you, it's great. So I just need to find a hive of hummingbirds. There you go. just walk into it. And then just be nice to them. (laughs) Just be nice to them. Just relax. If you're relaxed, they're relaxed. It's great. Like it says in the Bible, Zach, if you're chill with your hummingbirds, your hummingbirds (laughs) will be chill with you. What's that scripture reference? (laughs) It's in Galoshes. Galoshes. (laughs) And on that note, I think we've we've hit the wall. Can we take that last part out? No, no, we're leaving it. (laughs) That's what you get for making a terrible dad joke. Stupid dad jokes. Horrible dad joke. Uh, Britt, thank you so much for joining us. We love having you here. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. High five to Britt. Thanks, John. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time. This has been another episode of Unafraid. As always, we'd love to hear from you regarding future topics and questions that we might try and tackle. The best way to get a hold of us is by emailing info at okcfirst.com. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Your feedback and support is crucial to this podcast, and we can't thank you enough. And remember, no matter who you are, you are loved. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time.